courage and it's mental courage and physical courage to a certain extent. If you don't have the courage to keep moving forward, you will fall. And I think it is about making a choice. It's obviously not an easy thing to do, but it's a choice to say, I'm going to continue to push forward and push back on these people or I could fall over and just give it a miss and just stop doing it because I think your own mental health and well-being is so important. Raise 1000 Voices is the podcast on a mission to raise the voices of the clever, creative and courageous women across the world. I am your host, Jacqueline Nagel, and I invite you to join me in conversations with women who will inspire and empower you as we explore just how to lift our levels of self-trust, to reclaim the narrative and to use our voice to go after exactly what we want, doing it with strength, power and grace. So welcome back to Raise 1000 Voices as we kick off the best of 2023. We're going to start well. I'm going to finish well at the end of this year. But right now, I am pleased to thrilled to welcome Jen Whitwer to the podcast. Jen, welcome. Thank you very much, Jacqueline. I'm really, I'm really thrilled to be here. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. This conversation, I think we all got a little crazy towards the end of last year. And so these conversations have been a little while in the making and I'm really looking forward to today. So, Jen, for those listening along at home, where in the world are you right now? Well, I would say literally I'm in Canberra. Yeah. And the good thing is we're starting to enjoy some nice warm weather. So that's fantastic because. Oh, finally. Yeah, finally. But figuratively, I would say I'm at a bit of a crossroads in my life. Oh. So having, in fact, about to turn 61 tomorrow, I've just kind of, you know, sort of been doing consulting work for about five years since I left full-time work. I've just finished my master's in international development. I'm kind of thinking, do I look for a a full-time position that's going to really capitalise and leverage the academics that I've, you know, completed? Yeah. Do I go on and do a PhD, which I'm sort of mulling over in my mind, but (laughs) why would I be doing that? I guess the, the question in my mind at the moment is, on one hand, I kind of have the sense of ageing yes, and, you know, that I'm moving on and there are much younger women coming up behind me, which is really great. And part of the work I do is about paying it forward to help them. But also, you know, what is my contribution still yeah. in this changing world? And I've never had a five-year or 10-year plan. I kind of have just gone with the flow. Yeah. And I kind of think, well, where? what's next? What's next? You know, is that question we ask ourselves, what's next? Yeah. It's interesting. And Happy birthday for tomorrow, by the way. I love talking to a fellow Capricorn. Mine's coming up on (laughs) Sunday. So, and I think also too, I'm about a decade behind you. So actually exactly 10 years. And I think what I've noticed is we do get very serious about that question. What is our contribution in the world? So I love that you've actually answered that figuratively as well as literally, because I think all of us, especially as we age, and I felt like when I turned 50, I felt as though the world put me on notice. God put me on notice that the time for playing is now done. You know, you can explore all you want, but what is it you're actually here to do? And it's kind of like you're on notice. It's not that I feel like I'm going to leave this earth anytime soon, but it's, yeah, what do I do next and how do I actually truly show up and contribute? Yeah, look, funnily enough, and, and when you say those words like and express it like that, I kind of think I've been doing that. I feel like I've been, you know, giving such a, a big contribution, especially for the last five to ten years but I kind of think when do I stop 
Oh, oh, is there is there a drop oh, dead is point? There a, is there a stop date? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think it's so long as you're relevant and engaged, I think we can kind of push that envelope a little bit, can't we? Yeah. I'm hoping I so because so. I'm kind of thinking people say to me, you know, they're, they're starting to think about retirement. I'm like, what? Yeah. What's that? Like uh, there's too much to do in the world. There's too much to see. There's too much to be. Like, yeah. Exactly. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Incredible. So, Jen, you touched on, without saying what the work is that you do right now, but you are you do consulting and mentoring and coaching. You're very involved in humanitarian work, particularly the empowerment of women, mm-hmm. and your experience has been through defence and security, which is where you now also sit. Yeah. What I'd love to know, because I've got to know you a little over time, but what I'd love you to do is just walk the audience through in sort of a three- to five-minute version of who Jen Whitworth is now and how she actually got to this point. What shaped her to be in this role now? Yeah, I actually think I've come of age in a sense that I've spent, you know, 30-something years in, a, in an institution, the Navy, which I'm, I'm sure that you're familiar with. Yeah. And when I left that to continue to work on sort of women's empowerment, you know, women's equality, on gender mainstreaming work in international development, That's really where I felt I came of age or, you know, I became who I am now. This person who is not restricted, Mm -hmm. which I understand why you need to in in militaries, which, you know, and those sorts of organisations, I'm free to speak about the things that I'd like to speak about. I'm free to be me. I'm free to help whomever I want to help. And I think it was just like the lifting of those kind of restrictions and then plus working more in the international space than the national space. Yeah, where my qualifications and my experience and skills were very much appreciated and 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 desired. Yeah, I think really gave me that sense of validation as a as a, a new international development or humanitarian actor. Yeah, and I feel like I've come home. Wow, that's a powerful statement. Yeah, but I would not be home if it hadn't been for this you know long career that I had in the yeah. navy and the things that I had experienced in my career. So I. Really, I guess in a short period of time, I can explain that I, I joined the Navy at a time when it was very much a, you know, this male-dominated profession. It still is. And I was very oblivious to the culture that existed at the time, right? Sexual harassment, sexual assault, discrimination, bullying of women, sexism, because women were only a very, very tiny proportion yeah. of the workforce at that time. This is 1981. I think around about 7% of the ADF workforce were women. So it was not a very healthy environment. It wasn't conducive to really, you know, doing your best, you know, achieving your full potential. A lot of women suffered at the hands of mostly men. Yeah. I would say men in the organisation. And I always, you know, I'd sort of grown up in a home environment. I'd gone to an all-girls high school, but I was brought up in a home where education was you know, a priority. And my parents wanted me to do whatever it is that I wanted to do in my life. Yeah. And I chose the Navy. My second choice was the police force. Third choice was nursing, which was never going to (laughs) happen. But I I, I kind of felt that I actually wanted to go into a profession where one, I kind of felt that it was the right kind of environment for me, but two, where I felt that I could actually add value. Yeah. Okay and help create change. And I don't think I knew it as strongly as I do now, but back then, but with the experiences that I had very early on, it led me, you know, sort of down this path of wanting to be a part of change that I felt was really necessary. 
I unfortunately experienced a sexual assault when I was 19 in my second year in the Navy, and it was quite a traumatic experience. At the time, I didn't deal with it the way that you women might feel empowered to deal with it today. And I'm also thinking that it wouldn't have been, it would have been a really isolating experience at that point of your career. We're talking in the early 1980s. Yeah, look, it was, and there was no one to turn to because of the culture that existed at the time. No one would have believed me. It would have been my fault. Actually, the same old chestnuts, honestly, that I think women are still hearing today. Absolutely. When they come forward, as we know from some of the high-profile cases that have uh, been reported in the media. So it wasn't something I dealt with at the time, but I think I internalised it. Yeah. And I said to myself, this is not something that I want other women to experience. Mm. I want to be... You know, one of these people, one of these women that will stand up, be heard, whether they like it or not, and, you know, help create the change that was needed to ensure that women were valued and respected. Mm. Now, that's come over a very long period of time and a very long period of cultural reform that was absolutely necessary. And I think women have started to realise that they can use their voice and that they can call out bad behaviour and they can push back on you know, sexist cultures. But I wanted to be a part of that. And so despite many occasions, you know, where I've been bullied, where I felt that I've been discriminated against informally, you know, not sort of obviously by policy or anything like that, but in terms of people's behaviour in the workplace. And how it shows up in reality. Exactly. Yeah. And so I just wanted to be, uh, I just thought I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to show them that, you know, they're not going to push Jen Whitworth out. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to be the bane (laughs) of their existence. And I'm going to continue just to move forward, move the agenda forward. Mm. And I subsequently was through a whole range of jobs that sort of really occurred from about the mid-2000s in positions where I could actually help affect, you know, changing policy and changing culture and building opportunities for women to really step up and take their rightful place in these, you know, this type of male-dominated organisation. Can I just ask there, what was the first role where you really felt like you could tangibly make a difference in that way? I would say that probably around about the early 2000s, I had been offered an opportunity to become or head, head I was going to say head up and all, a, a directorate, but no, no team members, just me, <laughs> uh, head up a portfolio that was looking at Navy's culture. Right. And looking at its, and you know, the behaviour of its people. And its values and its mission. At that time, the Navy hierarchy was starting to get very, up, you know, upset about the kind of media that, you know, that everybody had been exposed to in the sort of the 1980s and 90s around men's behaviour, particularly yeah. on ships and um, in foreign ports. And they decided to do something about it. And I think it was, that was sort of the first time that I could, first of all, I had the ear of senior officers. Yeah. That I could be part of a process where I could help influence perhaps what they were thinking and what change they required. And so I saw that as, as the that actually then became, and I, was, I guess so, and I look back now in the last yeah. 20 years, the first role that I took that enabled me to start taking these steps to supporting women. And then funnily enough, I left that role after two years. I took up a period of reserve service for about five years because I wanted to spend some time mm-hmm. at home and be, have more flexible work for my children who were going into primary school. And then I came back into full-time work in about 2008, back into that same role. Oh, wow. 
which was because no, presumably nobody else wanted to do it. But it, <laughs> so we're still standing waiting for Jen. <laughs> exactly, that's right. It was like culture, culture change. Who wants to do that? Yeah, she's out of the way now. We don't need to address it. Exactly, that's right. But it was so fortuitous because I went into that role again by myself and it then evolved into a position in the founding team for New Generation Navy, which was Navy's flagship cultural reform program. And it's the one that really made a difference, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's still going today. In fact, it's called Next Generation Navy now, but it's still the same principles that were created way back in 2008, 2009, that you know, it has evolved and it continues to look at the way in which Navy can perform better. And I think that's a really great thing. So it was, you know, this was the foundation role, foundational role. And so I went into that and I was actually then allocated sort of the cultural pillar, which I thought, yeah, right, that's that's still me, that's my job. <laughs> and it was in that particular role that I was able to bring in, you know, the ways in which we could start to elevate women's roles more mm. formally and actually get some, you know, senior Navy leadership behind wanting to make change for women. Change in terms of, for example, the roles that were available yeah. to women because they weren't all still open to women at that stage. No. Uh, change in terms of, you know, getting more women into, more, you know, more senior leadership roles, removing some of the sort of the systemic and cultural barriers to women's participation and actually improving the, you know, the nature of the workplace so that actually women and other minority groups yeah. or other, you know, intersectional people and groups elements yeah could actually feel comfortable and included so that really was the start mm-hmm. to what I see now is a very different navy which is really great to see so it was that role in culture that led me into the subsequent roles that I took that have been the stepping stones to where I am today incredible I just want to if it's okay with you I just want to wind back to this role with new generation navy and and that the changes in making you know both well, women, minorities, intersectional, more comfortable in the culture of Navy. What was the key to being able to influence to create those changes? Because you were going up against an institution. This was generational attitudes and bias and things like that. What do you think was key to being able to actually start to shift the needle? A phrase that I hate, but it feels (laughs) quite appropriate right now, to actually start to influence and get gravitas that this is necessary. I think it was the fact that it actually was a formal cultural reform program that had been initiated yeah. by the senior leadership. Now, a lot of the work that was done under that program was done at, you know, at the lower levels. Yes. In so much as all people in Navy were engaged and discussions were held with them and they were consulted and their input was included in the way in which specific projects or elements of the reform program would be designed and implemented. So everybody was actually involved. But I don't believe that change normally occurs from the bottom up without some form of leadership from the top down. And in this case, it was leadership saying that essentially step up or step out. You know, we no longer want a Navy that looks the way that it did 20 years ago. We want a more modern Navy that is built for purpose, that is going to do the job that it's required to do, that it has the infrastructure behind it, and that it has the right people in the organisation with the right values that align to the values of the, of the institution. 
that's a powerful move by senior leadership. Absolutely. Now they, you know, there was a lot of resistance and a lot of pushback, as you can imagine, to this premise, one, that we needed change. Yeah. But two, that, you know, senior leaders were saying, well, you know, step up or step out. You get with the program or you, yeah. you know, you move on. Or you go. You know, Chief of Army said something similar a few years later along the lines of, yeah. you know, if you are not aligned with the values of this organisation and you don't want to behave the way that we expect of our people, then we don't want you. Yeah, powerful position. Right. We are a changing organisation. When you look at, we no longer have a, you know, white Anglo-Saxon. No you know, cast of people, we come from a variety of ethnic backgrounds and cultures and different languages and different intersections. And Navy and Army and Air Force and other institutions have to come along with the change, right? Absolutely. If they actually want high-performing, you know, well-skilled, different perspectives in the organisation. So I think that it was, it's just purely collaboration with everybody in the organization but it has to be led from the top it has to be the senior people saying this is not good enough we're going to make change but we're going to talk to you about the change we're going to talk to you about what we want to do you know engage you in the design and the implementation of these changes but we are going to do it yeah it's unequivocal so then moving through from there and you said you know this is this was the start of the pathway so where did the shift start to head towards humanitarian your interest in women specifically i mean obviously your incident when you were 19 that was the foundations of that but where did it become really specific because you have become known and i know you for the passion you have for gender equality for women for participation for all of those areas, where did that start to, did that start to unfold from that role within Navy? Where did that start to really take off for you? Look, it did. And I'm going to say really probably about 10 to 12 years ago, the seed was planted and it was planted through my work with New Generation Navy Mm. and, you know, having some wonderful leaders of that program who gave me the space and the flexibility and the opportunity to think outside the square because we, you know, we were working with a high-profile civilian consulting firm that also wanted Navy to look outside the square in all respects, and so we, you know, weren't making the same decisions for the same things that we'd always, you know, and done the things that we'd always done before. Yeah. So it really was about looking to see, well, what is it that you know, for me, looking to see what it is that we could do for women that is different from what we were doing before, or if we weren't doing anything before, what is it that we could do now that it was going to be a big game changer for them. And so in that role in New Generation Navy, because of the work that I was doing in the cultural pillar and bringing into that work issues around how we, you know, professionally develop our women leaders, what opportunities do they have, you know, how are we going to break down some of the barriers around jobs that were not open, you know, not available to them, those sorts of things. That Deputy Chief of Navy at the time decided that, well, dang, I just need someone to actually specifically focus on women. So I'm going to take you out. I'm going to take you out of the new generation Navy program. And I'm going to create a new role called the Navy Women's Strategic Advisor. And you're going to work directly to me and advise me and other senior Navy leaders on what we should be doing for women. What a phenomenal opportunity. Look, it was, and that role is still going today. Yeah. So I really feel that's, that's one of my legacies that I created a role that has, you know, that has created change, that has been meaningful, that is still warranted, of course, because yeah. we know that we, we would still not where we need to be. 
and that Navy has continued to support this role as an important advisory capacity to its senior leaders. Yeah. And so it was really that role then that, again, sort of even broadened the opportunities, the space that I could take up in terms of resources and ideas and, you know, start to put together programs and and I and projects that were going to, you know, practically help women, for example, through mentoring or networking programs and so on. So that was sort of really kind of the start of it. And then it was an opportunity arose to attend a meeting in Brussels of the NATO Committee on Gender Perspective, which is actually a, a more, more of an operational committee, but it's a committee of representatives from the NATO countries and the NATO partner countries to talk about how they implement gender perspective and gender mainstreaming into operations, into the operational space. And so I went along as the Australian or ADF representative and came away from that meeting, this is 2012, finally knowing everything there is to be about being a gender advisor in within NATO. And I thought, mm, I would really want to go and do that job in Afghanistan and thinking that probably it wasn't going to happen because Australia is only a partner country. They tended to fill the positions, the gender advisor positions, normally with women from the militaries of NATO nations. Yeah. But I came back and I said to the Deputy Chief of Navy, I'd heard all about being a gender advisor and I want to be a gender advisor in Afghanistan. Left it at that. And a few months later, he came back to me and he said, so we've just won the rotation for the gender advisor role in Afghanistan and Navy's got the first rotation, the first posting, and so you're going. Wow. So it it was not even open to, and, you know, it wasn't even open. It, it, there was no process to select someone. He just said, you're going. Because at that point, I was really the only one in Navy that was doing any work in the gender space. Yeah, Absolutely. So I set about doing all the, you know, the training I needed to do to more properly qualify me to undertake the role as a gender advisor. And that actually required me to learn a lot more about how gender equality is being implemented globally. Fascinating. The work that the United Nations and NATO were undertaking in countries and particularly in conflict-affected countries around women's participation in peace processes, women's participation in the political space, and women's participation in the security sector. And so I sort of kind of gathered all that around me and I did the training that I could online and, you know, rocked up to do this job in Afghanistan for seven or eight months. And I think it was there where I had the opportunity to engage with women in the Afghan security forces, where I really learned the value of international development in the sense that it involves them. It's not just being done to them, but actually is being done with them. And that's how I started to develop my sense of wanting to do more for women in these situations that were potentially 20, 30 years behind where we were in our own yeah. militaries back home here in Australia. And not that I felt that we were, you know, at a point where we could drop the ball here in yeah. the Australian Defence Force, but I really felt that I needed, that my place was going to be more internationally focused than it was nationally focused. And that's so that was back in 2013 that I deployed to Afghanistan for about seven months, where I became much, much more intimate with women in situation, you know, security institutions, institutions, and in situations where they were facing danger yeah. and death. Yeah, it's a theatre most of us don't have exposure to. No, that's right, exactly. And and working with some of the non-government organisations that were there, 
speaking with the women who are working in those organizations, uh, the circumstances that they came from, yeah. you know, the difficulties that they faced just actually doing their job. Yeah. And that was not something that we generally give much thought to back here in Australia because we're in such a safe country. No. So I really felt an affinity with these women that I met. I felt an affinity for the work that I was doing. Mm. I loved the fact that I had been doing this kind of gender work on a national level back home in Australia, but here I was now doing it in a conflict-affected country, working in a NATO operational command that was varied in terms of the nationalities, officers and, and men and women that were working there, and having these amazing opportunities to step outside the base and go and meet you know, women in the security forces that were working to better Afghanistan for themselves. Yeah. So that's where my love of this sort of environment grew. And I really, so from that role, and I came back to Australia to lead the implementation of the work that NATO and the UN were doing around women's participation in, in conflict. And that, you know, the sort of that, that role gave me awesome opportunities to get out and meet more people overseas in different circumstances doing similar work broaden my network and I realized this is where I really needed to be. Yeah. I had my last role in New York working for UN Women mm -hmm. as a policy specialist, sort of as a civilian but still being a paid ADF member. And that was I felt the stepping that was just the stepping stone to leaving the ADF and taking up a you know this role as a consultant yeah. in the international development space and it just it really just happened very gently but without any hiccups at all, when I look back on it now. But also so powerfully. I mean, you were being put into arenas that most people who are, want to be in that space would dream of being in. I just would love to also, just for a different perspective, like when you talk about being a gender advisor in Afghanistan and most of the audience would be, you know, we're all a little bit heartbroken with Afghanistan and what's happened with that since we were all participating over there. What is the one thing, having worked with those women on the ground, NGO perspectives, at-risk perspectives, military perspectives, institutional and the general population, what would be the one thing that you want us to know about women in conflict zones, about women doing amazing work over there, about why what you do matters? A couple of things. I think one of the most important things that we need to understand is that these women generally are working under very arduous conditions yeah. and circumstances where they are confronted by death, abuse, torture, a range of, you know, sort of behaviours that we don't understand mm. or appreciate. And these are women both in the security institutions and in, you know, NGOs yes. facing dangerous situations every day that they go to work. And whether it's Afghanistan or, you know, South Sudan or any of the other countries where these women are working, they are doing so because they want women to either, you know, get back what they had previously in terms of their rights yeah, or to actually achieve the rights that they feel that they're entitled to as 50% of the world's population. Yeah. So, you know, I, you know, continue to be inspired by seeing these women who are working in these conditions who do so at the risk of death yeah. or imprisonment. And, and, you know, of course, situations where they're not given you know opportunities to you know to defend themselves yeah. in either physically or legally for example but 
we, we didn't need to understand that if they didn't do it, if we didn't have these, you know, women activists, if we didn't have these well, women and men activists working for women's equality and women's empowerment, women wouldn't be where they are today, which is not where we need to be, but it's still better than where, where, it, was. You know, where it was. Yeah. And so I think we really do need to appreciate that we think soldiers are the only ones who face danger on the battlefield, yeah. but they're not. Mm. They are women going about their daily lives. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned there about, you know, both women and men activists and, you know, what do you think shows a true activist's heart? Is it the fact that they can get up and do this in the face of this great adversity and working in theatres that we can't even imagine? What is it that to you demonstrates a real activist heart when you think about the women that you come across? It's having a passion for their rights. Yeah. And it's just really, is, I think, as simple as that. Yeah. Everything that we take for granted here in Australia in terms of our ability to go and, you know, select a career that we want to mm. join when we leave school, to get a certain job, to access certain resources, to be part of decision-making, while we still obviously still have some issues here around women's involvement in more senior levels, you know, yeah. in parliament and so on, they pale into insignificance when you think about countries where, as we've seen in Afghanistan over the last 12 months, where women's rights have been so easily and completely stripped away from them. Yeah. And so when you think about, well, I have a right to go to university and do my master's degree in international development, and they don't. Yeah. And that's a simple process or act that actually contributes to the development of the country. Yeah. Right? You have to educate your people. Now, you take that away from women, you've lost half the population. It means that they can't be involved in public life. It means that they are being hidden away. Yeah. And we can't afford to do that. And women don't want that. No. And so, you know, we need to make sure that we as Western, you know, people in, in sort of more developed countries and in Western countries actually support these women who and men who are, you know, going out there and doing what they're doing. It's passion. It's wanting to see change. It's dying for that change. It's dying yeah. for that passion. They are prepared to do that. Yeah. And we've seen that with the situation in Iran mm -hmm. and the hijab yeah. and the protesters who have been arrested and executed as a result of their participation in that. But there will be more. And where, where, the, you know, where we might lose some activists on this hand because, I'm, you know, sadly they've been executed by the state, there are more men and women waiting to take up, yeah, take their spots. And I think that's what, you know, inspires me when I look at the work that is being done in this space overseas in women's equality and women's empowerment and women's leadership is that there are always women and men ready to step up and take the spot that's been left by someone who, you know, has moved on for whatever reason. Yeah, And I think that's... To me, that, that's the most inspiring thing about the work that has been done in this space mm. is that there's never going to be holes that have to be filled. Because there's always people to fill them. Yeah. I almost feel like there's a two-track conversation here because there's obviously <laughs> our current environment and there's also this risk. And one of the things is, you know, my work is about, as you know, is about I love and I'm on a mission to teach women how to raise their voice because it's all well and good to talk about, you know, why we should and that we should, but we also need to know how. And one of the things that is occurring for me with this part of the conversation is <laughs> there's almost like two things of this. So what, what breaks your heart about women not raising their voice? 
I think it's uh, if they're not raising their voices, which, you know, and I see both. I see women raising their voices and I see women holding back. Yeah. And I see that primarily in, you know, sort of the security institutions in which I work. And even here in Australia, they hold back because they're working in these male-dominated professions. They think they're equal to their male peers, you know, that they get equal pay, equal rights and so on. But they really don't appreciate the underlying culture or dynamics that's going on that actually overall and generally precludes women from achieving, you know, full equality. You would know that I've written a book, Against the Wind, about how women can be their authentic selves in our dominated professions. And I cite the story of a young female army colleague, and I know that she won't mind me mentioning her name, Lindsay. And she's a young mum in her 30s. She's got two young children. She's now, she's almost like me 20-odd years ago. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And so it's a joy to mentor her, you know, in, in this work that she's also doing. But she talks about what she calls her deconditioning. I love that phrase. Firstly, from sort of the patriarchal values. Yeah, patriarchal values and sort of these ingrained gender biases that she experienced growing up, you know, typical Aussie household. Mm. And secondly, what she kind of bought into when she first joined the army. And this is what I see, young women who feel that they have to adopt the behaviours and the culture. That they're entering into. That they're entering into, which is, you know, male-dominated male engineered and designed for men Mm. and we're still stepping into you know sometimes we're still stepping into those cultures and she at some point and thankfully she achieved it long before others but she realized that she wasn't being able to be her authentic self you know that she started to realize that she could actually be a mum a woman you know a feminine woman that's her identity and she could celebrate being a woman in this profession because of the diversity and different perspective that she brings. Now, I love hearing stories like that, but she only women like that only achieve those kind of changes or that deconditioning if they are supported and mentored by others to do so. And so that's been a big part of my role is actually encouraging women to see that authenticity is the one thing that's actually going to help them, you know, as they move forward. Nothing else. There's no need to pretend to be somebody else or, you know, to conform to certain behaviours or standards because they feel they have to. And so it's that sort of that sense of being beige, you know, blending in to that existing culture. Blending in, being in the background. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel that that's sad because I feel that most of them are doing it even though they don't want to do it. Yeah. And they're doing it even though it means they can't use their voice. So do you think it's from conditioning? Do you think it's actually hard for women? Like that deconditioning process can be quite confronting in and of its own right. How do you best support women through that? I think, you know, from the mentoring that I've been doing and and, and some coaching and just, in, you know, the encouragement that I give younger women that I work with, it's actually just continuing to do that. It's almost like you're doing it in the background. Yeah, You're not doing it so that it's up front and in their face or in other people's faces. No, you're it's not dramatic, help- is it? It's- exactly. Yeah, you're just helping to help the individual woman develop themselves and they have to do it at their own pace and in their own time. But I think that certainly in the areas that I work in, which is all gender related, that primarily the men and women that work in those spaces they want to be authentic, that they want to, you know, they want to celebrate the diversity that different genders and, you know, different intersections bring to the table. They're not afraid to say, oh, well, I'm, you know, 
that I'm gay or that I'm, you know, that this is my ethnic background, this is where I come from, that I'm a transgender woman, all these things that, you know, we're now experiencing in the workplace, yeah. in any workplace, to be honest. Absolutely. But it's certainly occurring yeah. in the ADF <laughs> as well. It's so important that we just see that, you know, we just need to help mentor, monitor, support, encourage these people, and they will, you know, they will come to these conclusions themselves. Perfect. You don't need to tell them to do it. They will realise through that mentoring, through that almost paying it forward kind of approach that I, I like to think that I'm doing, I'm helping the these younger ones be themselves. Yeah. Be who they want to be and do it in an organisation that, you know, previously may not have celebrated or encouraged that, but I feel that it's so important to any organisation that men and women are authentic, you know, and true to themselves. So I think it's just that it's providing that support and that mentoring in the background that enables these people to come to these conclusions themselves. That's the best way to do it. Yeah. And then they, you know, like Lindsay and her kind of deconditioning story, you know, she blossoms and her, you know, she just and she's just doing some wonderful things now in this in this space that we work in. And I'm encouraged to see, you know, men and women like her evolve yeah. into this person that feels that they can be themselves. Yeah. You know, that they and it's not about sort of, you know, sort of constricting what they say or do because they still have some limitations if they're still working in the ADF. But it's more about saying, you know what, we don't have to accept the way things are. We don't have to accept that this culture is appropriate. Mm. If we can call out behaviours that are not appropriate, you know, we can push back on some of the these uh, attitudes and beliefs that men and women still hold in our organisation and educate them. Yeah. So they're kind of almost like a, another new little army that have, you know, filtered into yeah. the Australian <laughs> Defence Force and are going around <laughs> and helping to educate people on the importance of diversity and inclusion yeah. and different perspective, which is really you know, the basis of the work that I've been doing for for so long. Yeah, absolutely. So with your work around the world and what you've done, who is it that inspires you? You did touch on the women in those organisations and situations, but who is it that actually really inspires you? It's not one particular person that I feel particularly that has inspired me, although there's some individuals that have when I see them. And, you know, of course, it goes without saying that it's women like if I think about here in Australia, you know, Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins come to mind straight away as two women who were prepared to stand up and push back. Yeah. And there's been a cost to them, of course, in doing that. Absolutely. Significantly, sadly, mm. and but that's the way it is. But, you know, if we don't have women continuing to do that and being prepared to do that, things won't change. Now, that's nationally. When I look at leadership through the COVID mm-hmm. period, for example, Jacinda Ardern, yeah. I think, emerged as one of the most respected and highly influential leaders during this period. You know, I don't know if you recall when she would do her Facebook, you know, Q&A. Oh, she was amazing. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. And she, but she'd sit Accessible there her, you know, and, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but she'd sit there in her tracksuit pants and, you know, talking about, you know, putting her kids to bed and doing all sorts of things. And, that, and what that did was actually enable people to see her as a human to start with yeah as a woman as a mother that she wasn't just a prime minister or a politician that she was at one with the people yeah and that was to me one of the most endearing characteristics that she exhibited and the research has actually shown that it's been that empathy and that compassion for people that is emerging as the best leadership traits that we can see in people today I think Santa Marin 
from Prime Minister of Finland has been another really fantastic and awesome woman to observe and watch her behaviour, her pushback on people suggesting you know that she's behaving in ways for example yeah. that the, you know the, the her private dancing yeah exactly yeah. like the, <laughs> that carry on about her being at a private party for goodness sake you know and she's doing a lot of work around tra- you know transgender policy reform in Finland. she's doing some pretty phenomenal work in this whole space yeah. isn't she behind the scenes behind what we hear in australia about the parties and the whatnot she's doing some quite incredible work at the moment yeah, and she's actually, you know, she's leading this sort of this coalition government of women who are, you know, setting out to dismantle these outdated notions of gender norms yeah. that they may have previously lived that have been the culture of, the, of their organisations or their workplaces or even their country. And she just wants people to identify as themselves. So she's one of these, you know, influential leaders of the world who are standing up and say authenticity is you know is the key yeah (laughs) yep leading by example what's your superpower when it comes to raising your own voice Jen because you've obviously had to be quite vocal along the way what do you think your superpower is I would just say it's uh, courage yeah and it's mental courage and physical courage to a certain extent because and I talk about this in my book about you know sometimes you have to put on your army flak jacket you know to yeah you know hold off the the barbs that are coming in left right and center and it happens you know because I'm outspoken because I speak on social media because I share my opinions you know I, I get trolled yeah along with the best of us that you know almost public figures and it's very it's disturbing trolling and I know from other more high profile people like Grace Tame and, and Brittany Higgins that you know we've heard of the trolling that's caused them significant distress and it does and it becomes personal. And I think that if you don't sort of, if you don't have the courage to keep moving forward, you will fall. Yeah. And I think it's, it is about making a choice. It's not an easy, it's obviously not an easy thing to do, but it's a choice to say, I'm going to continue to push forward and push back on these people, or I could fall over and just give it a miss and just stop doing it because, you know, what's important. Now, that's not to denigrate you know, women who might have pulled out of doing work like this because of those, you know, the yeah. sort of consequences of that behaviour because I think your own mental health and wellbeing is so important. It's interesting. I think it's a conversation. It's a conversation we're going to do a lot more of this year mm-hmm. because my personal experience through a business failure in 2016 that had global headlines, I do say there was a particular day, my worst day of trolling was 1,100 messages, and this was with my social media being in lockdown. Right. So it was hard to get to me. And I still got 1100 trolling messages, actual messages in my inbox. And on that particular day, I could understand for the first time in my life how it could push you to take your own life. I wasn't at risk of it, but I wasn't in a good place and I could understand it. And that is not on the volume of Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins. And I did opt to protect my mental health and withdraw from the world. And I'm stepping back into it gingerly because of that experience. But I think more of us need to have a conversation about the courage to push through. It was brought to my attention yesterday in conversation, you know, JK Rowling got trolled ex- like so badly over the last 12 to 18 months and she did fight back and she had the courage. And I think we do have to have courage to raise our voice because cancellation is real trolling is real the impact you know that saying of sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never hurt me when we grow up is proving to be completely false and so I think your answer of it takes courage courage is your superpower 
it's something I really want to see us have more conversations around because if we can actually borrow courage and belief when we need it, yeah. we're more likely to be able to stand up and raise our voice. Yeah. And look, you know, the, the way that I do this is is this. When I comment on, you know, I might put a post out or I might comment on someone else's post and my comments might be contrary to the, you know, to the original post. It might be offering a different opinion. Of course, it's coming from a woman, so therefore yeah. I'm going to be trolled because, you know, who am You're I? You're a white <laughs> woman in privilege, yeah. <laughs> exactly, that's right. And then when I get responses or, you know, messages or even just comments on the, on my comment or on my post that I feel provocative, bordering on nasty. Mm. I mean, I remember making a comment about, it was on an article about sex workers overseas and about how often, you know, they're trafficked women different circumstances and the this response that came in from this individual was well I must know what they're talking about because you know I must have been a prostitute myself to know what they're talking about well that's one that's a kind of a harmless comment in a sense but you know when you talk about that and then elevate it a hundred percent yeah that's the problem you have but what I would do is sure someone is free to make a comment like that but I don't bite back mm. in fact I walk away I will just walk away from that comment, that stream or that, you know, that post or and move on mm. to the next thing and not not labour. Over it. You no, know, just not think about it, put it behind me, go, well, they're just, you know, they're uneducated people. They don't know what they're talking about. I don't need to engage in any kind of uh, conversation with them. I don't need to explain myself and they don't like it. Well, they can move on, but that's definitely what I do. So I think it's... Courage only comes, though, from putting in place those mechanisms to protect yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And so that was mine. Yours might have been for that particular situation to walk away and completely understandable, have a break. I know friends that have had breaks from social media just to give them that space that they need. Yeah. But I keep going because I ignore. Yeah. I love the that. Rubbish. And I think if you don't ignore the rubbish, then I think that's where you're going to go down yeah. rabbit holes and potentially put yourself in harm's way. It's interesting because it all flared for me again about two years ago and I was just starting to make my way again in the world and I had the option and my immediate response was to withdraw. And then I actually said to my partner at the time, I said, I woke up one morning and I said, you know what, I'm going to go to work as if those things don't exist. So that ignore and move. And it's really interesting because they're still there and they still come after me, but I don't notice them anymore. And so I love that. It is advice, actually, like courage is built on having mechanisms, knowing yourself, but also ignore and move. Mm. You know, I think we can almost put that in a move, ignore and move. Like it's like literally the best move I ever made was exactly what you just described. It changed my world because I let go of it. So I love that. So courage is your superpower. Is there anything that is your kryptonite? Is there anything that brings you unstuck? Well, funnily enough, just on the topic of the sort of the, of the courage being the superpower and talking about social media, is I've often thought about giving it away, but I can't really because it is an opportunity, it is the platform that I yeah. can use to share my voice yeah. now. So I'm not going to be trolled out of that opportunity. And so that leads me into my kryptonite, which is actually writing. Ah. Speaking and writing. But, you know, putting my, my opinions, my knowledge, my expertise into articles, blog articles, journal articles, you know, commentating on social issues on on various platforms, writing, and I guess to a certain extent, speaking as well, is my kryptonite. That is the way that I can get my message across. Love it. Yeah. And I believe one of my core beliefs is that once you actually give someone the power of their voice and how to express and how to write, I think the world changes. 
especially when I put it in the hands of women. Yeah, look, and I often say to people, I don't know if you've ever experienced this when you've been on a stage and someone gives you a microphone, don't you own the stage? Like yes. it's almost like, you know, you sort of when you think about yourself being up on a stage with a microphone, you go, oh, no, no, I can't do that. Yeah. But honestly, once you get the microphone and you're up on the stage, like, you shut up. It's right? like, this <laughs> is mine now. <laughs> exactly. That's right. I've got the stick. I've got the, yeah, I've got the talking stick. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> I love that. Jen, we are going to have to wrap up. I could talk to you all day long. I really do appreciate this conversation so much. For everyone listening as well, I hope you're taking on board that there is so much more in the world about finding our voice rather than just doing it from where we stand. So I am going to finish with some rapid fire questions. We do ask everyone what they are. And the original question we were asking was favourite book of all time, but people are finding that challenging. So it can be your favourite book of all time or your go-to book. Well, in fact, I was going to say it's not really my favourite book because I have lots of favourite books and I, and I, I try to read a lot. But one new book that I'm reading that was given to me as a gift as I was departing a board just recently um, as a non-executive director is Not Now, Not Ever. I read that over the holidays. <laughs> that book yeah. is superb. Absolutely, because it's, you know, this is that is that is a book that raises the voices of women oh. who are pushing back yeah. on misogyny and public life. And the more we can read about women in those circumstances, the more we can hear yeah you know, women in your in your podcast and in others raising their voices to say this is not acceptable anymore, this has got to change, mm -hmm. the more other women will be empowered and inspired to make those changes in their life. So not now, not ever. It is. I, I like literally, I read it, I inhaled it. I, <laughs> I, it's dog-eared already. It's like it is for everyone listening and even our international audiences, please find a copy of the book. It is phenomenal. Current podcast binge. Are you a podcast lady? Uh, I do listen to podcasts. I do participate in podcasts. But the one that I've uh, been listening to for a while is called What She Did Next by Jackie Ooh. Uwe. Haven't heard of that one. And it's different to yours, but it showcases women and the inspiring things that they're doing. I say these kind of podcasts showcase ordinary women doing extraordinary things. It's about the brave choices they've made in life oh. and the positive changes that they're affecting in their lives. And that's just as powerful as your podcast, you know, listening to, you know, the reason why women do what they do. So. Yeah, I'm going to have to go and hunt that down. That will become my new <laughs> obsession, I think. Next question is the voice that you love most in the world. I love lots of voices in the, the world, uh, but I will fall back on Malala, yeah. of course, because she's been a very inspiring young woman who continues to inspire with the work that she does. But she is the one that expressly said that education was the yeah. was about the empowerment of women. And so, you know, of course, as I mentioned before, in Afghanistan at the moment with the Taliban, you know, removing your opportunities for education from women. And this is, she said something that just really resonated with me. She said, I raise up my voice not so that I can shout, but so that those without a voice can be heard. Yeah, I think the first time I heard, I can't even remember exactly where I was and I feel like it should be one, but the first time I heard that I literally stopped because it is powerful. And that is also too one of the things I really believe as women, we have to, if we're capable of speaking up and speaking out, we actually have an obligation to do so. Because so many women don't have the skill, the opportunity, yeah. the wherewithal. And I believe that if we are gifted that, the skill of communication, that skill of education, that skill of opportunity, we are obligated to speak out. And so I love that you brought that through. 
When it comes in the context of speaking up and being heard, what's the worst piece of advice that you've ever been given? And for those for those listening along at home, Jen's actually started <laughs> grinning the minute I started asking this question. <laughs> I think probably it's one piece of advice that's given to a lot of women who have experienced a very negative or had a very negative experience in their life. And they're just told to move on. Yeah. Forget about the past. You know, life's a journey, blah, blah, don't blah. Don't speak of it. You know, don't exactly, don't speak yeah. of it. That's exactly what I did when this, when I experienced this rape when I was 19 years old. And I held it within for about 15 years. That's a long time. Before I actually started to express myself and let people know that this had happened. Yeah. And then take various steps to, you know, to have it addressed. Yeah. But yeah, forget about your past. But, you know, I say that if I didn't actually acknowledge that event that occurred and take from it lessons, which I did, I don't think I'd be where I am today. No, it's incredible. It's not about that it doesn't create a great outcome because I think some of us are doing the work that we do or taking the pathways we take because they are informed by trauma Mm. in a good way. Yeah. And I believe that everything that we experience brings us to where we are now. Of course it does. When you spoke about that earlier in the in the episode, it was very obvious that it started that pathway for you. And I love, and I was actually thinking to myself, there is actually still though a fine line between tenacity and stubbornness, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> they just felt differently, that's all. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you've been given? So the flip side of that. I, this is not a piece of advice, but it really was the message that came through from a song by Helen Reddy, you know, the song I Am Woman. Yeah. Now, I am woman, hear me now. I am woman, yeah. hear me raw in numbers yeah. too big to ignore. And I know too much to go back and pretend. And I think this is what women, you know, who find their voice, they acknowledge their strengths and they want people to know it. Yeah. They can't go back. They can't pretend no. anymore. No. No. And it's about being loud. Raise your voice. Be loud. Be out there. And you can't go back. So just keep moving forward. Oh, I love this. And I love, I mean, that's one of my favourite songs of all time. I actually went to see the musical years ago and oh. they actually went through when she wrote it and put it together, which was phenomenal. And the pushback she got at the time for daring to have those words in her music. And so, yeah, I, that that is the perfect mantra to talk about with Raise 1000 Voices. And we are going to have to wrap in a moment. Is there <laughs> anything else you want, any final pearls of wisdom from Jen? Yes, I do want to end with a quote and it's from a lady called Karen Keller. Dr. Karen Keller, she's a US-based women's influence and persuasion expert, and she says, there is a greater promise for our daughters when we find, open up, and share our voice, and that voice is being heard. Just like our mothers did before us, we pay it forward. Oh, I love that. Jen Whitworth, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a delight. No, thanks, Jacqueline. It's been a real joy for me and I really you know, wish you all the best with the podcast and I really look forward to listening to more of the women that come on board. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Raise 1000 Voices. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. And if you have, then I would love you to subscribe to and rate the show on your favorite platform. Our show notes, resources, and links to all our socials can be found at anygiventuesday.com.au 
forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to join a growing community of clever, creative, and courageous women who know that they want to be seen, heard, and remembered, then join us in our Facebook group, Raise 1000 Voices. Until we speak again, take care and remember, you were born to raise your voice.